This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I'll sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a beginning writer with bylines at FilmCred and Certified Forgotten. He's a horror lover and self-proclaimed podcast supporter who's currently working on releasing his own podcast in the near future. Beautiful welcomes to J.D. Gravitt. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited. I appreciate that wonderful introduction there, and, and I'm happy to be here today with you going over this movie. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on as well. I know we talk a little bit from time to time on on the Twitter sphere, and you've shown a lot of passion for the film we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Before we get to it, I do have a quote from philosophy I'd like to just get out of the way. So everybody who listens regularly, you know, I tend to bring in something. And as usual, I'm going for philosophy on this one. And as you can you know know what movie we're going to talk about, but we'll still do our big intro later. I think this one fits pretty well. If this is not your most favorite part of my episodes, I do apologize for today because it's a long quote. Also, you could probably tell from my voice, I've had a little bit of a rough time with my voice this weekend. Uh, so bear with me if I squeak and squawk a little bit. But uh, here's our quote. The soul thus cleansed is all idea and reason. Holy free of body. Intellective entirely of that divine order from which the wellspring of beauty rises in all the race of beauty. Hence the soul heightened to the intellectual principle is beautiful to all its power. For intellection in all that proceeds from intellection are the soul's beauty, a gracious native to it and not foreign. For only with these is it truly soul. And it is just to say that in the soul's becoming a good and beautiful thing is its becoming like to God. For from the divine comes all the beauty and all the good in beings. Quite a passionate quote right there that I think fits what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'll reveal later who that is and uh, say hello to my cat who decided to chime in while I was uh, giving everybody that wonderful quote. Uh, but first, JD, uh, let's talk a bit about horror and your your connections to it and how you got into it the way you are these days. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, you know, I'm born in 88, so I grew up in the 90s, and I think the 90s had a lot of really good gateway horror and kid directed horror. So, I mean, my parents were reading Stephen King and Uh watching X-Files and, um, you know, they bragged about how they saw the original Halloween on opening night. So like horror was definitely something that was in our family zeitgeist. And then with things like goosebumps and are you afraid of the dark and those sorts of things, it was something that really fed that love of, a good story, but also that feeling of being scared. And so then I think, you know, 
being a teenager in in the early aughts and really getting to dive into as horror was kind of making a bit of a resurgence. And I, I know a lot of people don't necessarily love a lot of those remakes and reboots and stuff that were coming out then. But for me, that was so foundational in my horror journey. And and then really, it was a way for me to kind of get introduced to the classics. So yeah, I might not think that, you know, the Texas Chainsaw remake is better than the original, but it holds a place in my heart because of when I saw it and because it introduced me. So I think, you know, I'm grateful of growing up in that time because it really was a great time in horror, you know, and there was just a lot out there and a lot was available. So that was a, a fun time to grow up and be learning about the genre. I agree. I, I absolutely loved that time. I was born in 87, so just a year earlier than that. And we had some fun times, didn't we? Like Beetlejuice yes. cartoon, Courage the Cowardly Dog, reruns of Scooby-Doo, Adam's Family on the Sci-Fi Channel, all kinds of stuff was going on. And I remember one of the things that got me the most and really dragged me in was there was a, and I wish they would do this again, by the way, but Burger King somewhere in like, 2000 2001 something like that they ran a toy line for their kids meals that was the universal movie monsters because they were celebrating a big anniversary for it and i just thought it was just so cool that kids were getting dracula and the wolfman and all these cool toys that were supposed to do all the stereotypical things there are so many gateways i love that you mentioned x-files too my mom is a huge x-files fan when it was out so I think we had a very similar environment when we were being reared into our media culture, basically. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's the thing is Friday nights when X-Files was on was like appointment viewing um, for my mom. It was that thing where no matter what might be going on, we were stopping what we were doing and making sure we were home in time to watch it. And so, yeah, it was it was something that there are definitely episodes of that. Like when I read to watch through it now, I'm like. I probably shouldn't have watched that <laughs> at such a young age. <laughs> yeah. um, but for whatever reason, you know, because it was on regular TV and, uh, you know, there was that scientific kind of element to it. It was something that that we were allowed to watch. So, And were you always interested in the kinds of observations that you're making these days since, you know, you're not, you're on this podcast, which already means that you've you've got something to say, I'm sure. And you've also written about films already for publications. So I'm just very curious, like, when did you get that spark to say like, Hey, I've noticed something here and I'd like to share that with everybody. Um, I, I've always been, kind of a writer um you know my degree is in english and so that's always been kind of something that i've enjoyed doing um but specifically with film um and this is another one that you and i have talked a lot about but pan's labyrinth it was one that um you know i got to see i got to see in theaters and it was just kind of like an awakening for me where it was like (laughs) so much was going on you know you could watch that movie with no sound and still the beauty of it and and just everything in it, you could still enjoy it. And I feel like on the same spectrum, you could watch with just the sound and the dialogue and, and there's still an experience there. And, you know, I think Del Toro does a lot of things really, really well. But that movie in particular, he's just hitting on all cylinders. And so that was the one for me where it was really like, oh, wow, like 
this is what movies can do. And so that was something for me where it was really starting to dig deeper into, you know, how do they compose this shot and why are they making that choice with the lighting and the framing and, and really, really dive into it. Oh, that, that is a great film to really spark that kind of an interest. Uh, I was obsessed with Pan's Labyrinth when it was being announced and promoted. I did not get to see it in cinema, so I am superbly jealous of you. Um, I mean, I could have, and I, in hindsight, I really wish I had, but I was, I see it was like 2006 or so when it came out. So I was young enough, like, you know, uh, 1920, that I was still stupidly kind of stuck in this. But film needs to have a narrative, and I need to understand it, and I want to know the narrative. And I already lived here in the Netherlands, and they only put Dutch subtitles on movies when they come out. And you would think that maybe you would put English subtitles for films that are not in English. But no, and I didn't speak any Dutch at the time, so I just thought it was completely worthless if I went to see the Spanish movie with no idea what was going on. But I hate that I didn't do it. Ah. How was it seeing it in the cinema? Was it uh, as earth-shattering as I imagined it would be? I mean, yeah, for me, it definitely was. It was just one, like, because <laughs> the visuals in that movie are just so stunning. And so I seeing them on a big screen, and, and I went in knowing very little about it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where you get so caught up that you are, you're missing the subtitle. You know, there were times where it was like, I'm not 100% sure what they said. You know, I can read the context of the movie and stuff and and pretty sure, you know, I can follow the plot, but there were times where just the visuals and especially on a big screen, it was just so overwhelming. You're like, wow, okay, I, I didn't read any of what just happened, but <laughs> I saw it and it was beautiful. Uh, well, that's wonderful. That's what we want here is to get swept away with this experience that we have when we're either in the cinema or even when we're just at home and we're watching a film and it just takes you by surprise. That's my favorite thing about cinema altogether and film. And yeah, I, I, I'm jealous of you in so many ways. Just like to catch Pan's Labyrinth without knowing really what, the, what you were about to get yourself into and just let it kind of like take you for that ride. I had that with The Wailing. I don't know if you've seen that one, but we went to see a sneak preview. So they just show a random movie. You don't know what they're going to play. It's always something that's about to come out, though. And we we're like, oh, no. Oh, oh goodness. It's a, it's a Korean film. Now, I spoke Dutch at that point. So I was like, ah, I'll try. And I'm so happy I sat down for that three hours because it was just life changing to see that in the cinema. So I, I I can relate a little bit, but ah, Pan's Labyrinth, man. I'm so jealous. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that, everybody. We had a little bit of a technical hiccup, but we are back. So we were gushing a bit about Guillermo del Toro, and I was gushing a bit about the whaling. And I think with all that gushing, we should actually put that into practice for the film we're going to talk about today. I think we're really warmed up and ready to go. So, J.D., could you tell everybody what movie did you pick for today? I picked the wonderful Saint Maud. Saint Maud. I was ecstatic when you brought this movie up. It was one of the first movies I thought of when I thought of this podcast. Since we've been talking, I've actually decided to include it in my own thesis 
because I think oh, it wow. really nicely. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's going to be great because it's on Cosmic Horror, and I'm going to make a claim for St. Maud and Cosmic Horror. Before we get into it, for anybody who has not seen St. Maud, I have made the most spoiler-free possible synopsis, so you can see for yourself if it's something you really want to check out before we get into spoiler territory. And if you don't care, we're going to do that after the synopsis. But this is what I have written down. The pious and mild-mannered Maud is a caretaker at a hospice service. She has just started work for a new patient, Amanda, a former ballerina who is dying with cancer. At first, the two coexist merely as nurse and patient. However, Amanda eventually warms to Maud's excessive devotion to God and the scripture after Maud opens up to her about her recent conversion. Meanwhile, Maud struggles to show pride in her beliefs and experiences with the divine in everyday life. She has the impulse to spread the gospel, but she recoils in shame with every utterance. Her friendship with Amanda emboldens Maud and empowers her. This newfound confidence paves the way for a series of visions that leads Maud toward what she experiences as a holy path. The question is, are these visions from the Lord above, all in her head, or from something far, far more? insidious that's what i got out of the movie in, in in a little quick gist there i don't know if you find that to be accurate or not yeah i i think that's a really good synopsis of what's going on i think obviously especially being spoiler free because <laughs> i think there's a lot about this movie that digs into even the little details that that give things away, you know, that, so, I, so yeah, I think that's a perfect spoiler free synopsis. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I know that this movie means a lot to you and you were telling me when you brought it up, like there, if there's a movie that I find beautiful and I really want to talk about, it's St. Maud. So what is it about this movie? If you can at least sum up re- like in a few sentences that made this just jump out to you as the topic you want to discuss. Sure. So for me, I grew up Catholic and I actually, I mean, it's not clear necessarily what denomination Maud is, clearly Christian, but I think what resonated with me that I found beautiful aside from the visuals was the real like passion and fervor that you could tell Maud is feeling that's driven by her religious experience to me was really captivating. I think Morphid Clark does such a phenomenal job in her portrayal. And I think, you know, I, I spent time uh, when I was younger going to like religious retreats and stuff and seeing people getting just completely swept up in those feelings they're having. And I think for me, it, it the movie really captured something very authentic in that and showing Maud experiencing what she's experiencing and going through what she's going through, it, it felt very, very authentic to me. So it was something that immediately jumped out as like, Oh wow. You know, they're doing something here that's special and different. Yeah. As somebody who grew up uh, in a more Protestant area myself, but my dad did take me into uh, Pentecostal churches when I was 12, 13, very, very, you know, impressionable age. And I agree with you with that. The way they've depicted Maud's euphoria throughout all of this and this obsessive need to fit some sort of mold. 
was very realistic. I've seen so many people who who have this feeling. And yet what I love the most about it is they showed the human side of Maud a lot more than most films of this sort of topic probably would have. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the thing is, you know, as you go into the movie and you learn about Maud and her past, you know, it's it adds such a depth to what she's experiencing and and the way she is about the things that she, she's going through that I think is is very different from what you typically see in this kind of religious horror. I also love that she seems to have this kind of crisis of faith throughout the entire film. And it's even more interesting when you find out later in the film. So here we go. Spoilers already later in the film, after she's already gotten to know Amanda a little bit, she comes clean and says that her conversion was really recent. And we know a little bit about why we get a glimpse of it at the beginning, the opening sequence, something to do with patient gone wrong. But I just found it interesting that her, (laughs) she dove in so hard into all of this that she's already having this whole, I think God has forsaken me. I'm not trying hard enough. Well, he probably just thinks I'm pathetic anyway. I think I'm pathetic. She goes through these different thought processes. I've seen a lot of people do, but usually in their like in their fifties, you know, when they've been, very devout for their entire lives and just realize like I, I don't have a mortgage i don't have any grandkids <laughs> my car is broken and you start to doubt life a little bit and uh it, it showed how she's spiraled out you know yeah i think that's the thing is that once you learn that you know because i she seems from the the very moment you meet her outside of that opening scene that really is very ambiguous you know there's some blood it's dark she's frightened you know it's never made clear what exactly happened other than something horrific but you know you meet her in her tidy little apartment praying over dinner and then you know it's it's like narration of her prayer that's just part of who you know Maud as is just she's praying about her life her day what's happening um, so it's very easy to think, oh, this is just Maud. And so to learn, oh, wait, so th- this is not who Maud has always been. Uh, I think, yeah, it's it's really interesting and it adds to that. Like you said, it's not something where she's had this strong faith for a decade and now she's struggling. She's had strong faith for maybe a few months and it's already, she's she dove so far so fast that she's already having these big existential struggles with what she's feeling. Yeah. And what gets me with this is, uh, I mean, I don't know how your relationship is with the church nowadays. Mine's a little contentious just from the way I was raised. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that at all. Yeah. I mean, for me, I definitely still consider myself a faithful person, you know, a person with faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with the organized and the human side of it. Cause I think that's where all of the flaws and, and organized religion come from the fact that it's run by people who are inherently flawed. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I, I shy more away from that side, but I, I still, you know, personally stick with a lot of the, the faith elements that I was brought up believing. Okay, if my mother's the same way. I we went to church when I was younger cuz she thought ah, it's good to go to church. You get a community there, you know. But at the same time, she's like oh. every time she hears preachers talking, 
She's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just want you to tell cool Bible stories and talk to us about how beautiful it is to believe in something. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing I get with Maud when I'm looking at her. I don't see, especially knowing the backstory, you know, knowing this is all recent, I do not see how she got into the situation other than it just kind of communicates to you even more that something's off because as you were pointing out, you know, she's already built up this lifestyle that looks like she's been at it for years. The only people I know who do that have been either pressured by other people or at the very least taught by other people. You know, they've been to church, they grew up with it, their parents passed it down to them or you just, you know, it becomes habit at a certain point that you say grace before dinner, you hold hands, all the different rituals that you might do, depending on what religion you're a part of. And I, from the conversation she has with her old colleague that she bumps into, it sounds like when she was Katie, she was fine. Like as in like kind of wild, typical girl, her age, you know, secular British girl and how you can go from that to, Knowing the little details like that, it blurs that line for me. And I think that's what makes this movie so cool is because often I find that when a movie is giving you something ambiguous and saying, well, you don't know if what we're giving you is actually the reality of the situation or if it's something that's in somebody's head, it can be a little off-putting to me just because they don't really... Well, it's basically the usually the films feel like they actually have one that they believe in, but they just made it ambiguous for people who don't want to like align themselves with that thought process. And this one, I think, did a great job of just making it blurry because, well, how the hell did you learn all this mod unless something taught you? But did they? And that's a spooky question for me. Yeah, I think that's the thing is, you know, St. Maud as a movie there's not a lot of typical horror elements, even for religious horror. You know, I think a lot of the, and I don't love the debate between the difference of horror and thriller and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, But, but when you're looking at, you know, what you would expect from a religious horror movie until you get to the last five minutes, maybe even less than that, it doesn't have those typical things, but I think that's the horror in it. And, I rewatched it today just to prep for the podcast and it's probably the fourth or fifth time I watched it since it came out and I think it released wide in February. So, you know, I've seen it a lot of times in the short time it's been available. And I think the thing for me, it does, it blurs those moments where, you know, she's sitting and she's lost her job and she's doubting things and you see the cross independently fall off of her dresser and she turns around and sees that it's fallen but you're not seeing that through Maud's perspective or like the scene where she uh, levitates you know she has some sort of medical event whether it's a seizure or what's happening you know something is happening but she levitates and again it's not really through her perspective it's it's something you're seeing kind of independently so it blurs that line really well of what is in Maud's head? What is actually happening? You know, is it a little bit of both? Is it all one or the other? Um, and I think, like you said, that adds horror to it. Because if she didn't learn this from somebody and she's not imagining this, where is it coming from? Exactly. I mean, we do see the image of the cockroach whenever she seems to have 
her strongest visions. But that's, you know, apart from way late in the film where the thing eventually crawls into her shrine and starts talking to her, we don't actually get any glimpses of anything. Like, even, like, Hereditary, that did a very good job of being subtle throughout the whole film, they even had, like, they at least had, like, this little light to show you that something supernatural was happening. But with Maude, it's all her. It, it, it's just all her doing things. And, yeah, I didn't even think about that cross until you brought it up, but it is true. Now that I think back on it, after, you know, I watched it today, too, and you're right. We see it happen over her shoulder while she's not looking, so it can't be her perspective. Uh, unless she makes it up in her head, like maybe she knocked it over earlier and then she just, it, it divinely fell off the wall. Uh, who knows? But yeah, uh, it's hard to tell because the film's just kind of like, hey, take this at face value. And this is the series of events that you're getting. Even the scene at the end. I mean, if we can, I don't really care about doing things linearly. I don't know if you wanted to go on a more linear. Oh, no, yeah, we story. can. Yeah, I think we can we can jump to the end. Absolutely. Okay, so in the end of this film, she's finally accepted that she's going to be a martyr and she's going to be Amanda's savior because Amanda calls her her little savior kind of endearingly because she has this, you know, super devout Christian girl taking care of her while she's a wild artist, you know, and it backfires because Maud's like, you're right, and really takes that to heart. So she goes back to Amanda's house and Amanda's thinking oh, you're here to reconcile the fights that we've had and you're hurt. But Maud's like, no, I'm here to save your soul. She's just wrapped up in a sheet looking like she's in some robes, like she's Joan of Arc. And they end up having a battle of wits because Maud is really convinced that she's been spoken to by God and that God has given her a higher purpose. And Amanda's whole demeanor starts changing because she gets really mean. And then it's just so clear that she's possessed by a demon and Maude has to save her. So we get some some of that, as you were saying, the, the, the kind of typical religious horror stuff, possessed woman, demonic voice, dark eyes, and Maude just ends up stabbing her to death. That's It's such an interestingly shot scene because most filmmakers probably would have done something to the effect of like showing very subtle effects on her face, on Amanda's face. And then Maude doing something that she thinks is pretty helpful. And then we might cut to a different angle with different filtering on it to show you the reality of the situation and to make it much more uh, grimy and, and, and bleak looking. And it doesn't do it. The movie's just kind of like, uh, you take your pick. Uh, maybe this happened exactly how we just showed it to you. Yeah, and I think because that, yeah, when when that happens, when Amanda makes her turn to fully demonic, obviously it happens very fast. There's nothing to indicate up until that point that potentially she's vulnerable to, vulnerable to being possessed. You know, she just like you said, she's an artist. She drinks a lot. She's dying of cancer. You know, she's has multiple partners. She's she's the, as far from Maud in terms of being a a Christian person as as you can be. But she's not, you know, there's nothing evil about her. So I think it's, it happens very quickly. And then again, Maud gets like thrown against a case, you know, a glass case against the wall. And it's this very physical, very violent encounter that Amanda, who has, I think they said some form of spinal cancer. She's a 
frail, weak person. So you know the reality is that she couldn't do that to Maud. So again, it's those questions: Is this happening in Maud's head? Is you know, if we saw it in quote unquote reality, would Maud just be throwing herself around while Amanda's sitting there horrified, or? is something actually happening, you know, and it it does a good job of even in that moment where you're confronted with Maud's reality of seeing this demon, you still question what's happening, but you also don't fully think you don't fully think yes or no. It it keeps you in the middle. Yeah. I think the only thing that really makes it clear in, in hindsight is that final shot. When Maud sure. pours the gasoline on herself, she sees all the the light of heaven around her, the vortex, all of that, and then you get the final two seconds of her screaming while she's on fire. Yeah. Uh, that I think is the one moment that Rose Glass actually says to you, "Oh, you've been in Maud's world this yeah. whole movie." What I love about that is essentially she has made a parable from the Bible in a film, basically, because that's kind of how the discourse on these things, at least the more secular discourse tends to take place around these. Honestly, even in, in certain churches I've been in, if they were a little more grounded and and more taught the, like the teachings of the Bible, than verbatim saying, no, this is a historical document. They would often say like, you know, although these things seem very fantastical, we're talking about the passing on of communication and the realization of what sort of communication is being passed on and the elation that comes with it. So although we may talk about the burning bush or we talk about these angels and their, their very strong divine ways, we're trying to describe in a narrative way, the impact of the emotions, the people were having and the realizations they were having. And I love that St. Maud seems to be doing the same thing. We're watching her go through her process, but she's kind of a farce in a way. She she's just wearing the she's wearing devout like the devout clothing basically if you will not literally but you know what you know what I mean like it's like the skin of a a devout person when yeah. she doesn't come from that world she doesn't really know what that feeling is yeah I think that's the thing is that if she were Katie this whole movie you know if it was she's Katie just Katie who has you know found God. I think it's very different. The fact is she created an entire new persona mm-hmm. either because she found God or to find God. But Maud in herself is a, a creation, is a fabrication. And I think that's another element that you don't see. You know, she's not, it's not some sort of split personality or anything. She clearly still is Katie. You know, she has those memories. She has the night where she goes out, you know, after she loses her job, she's so distraught, so unsure of her role in God's plan that she says, you know what, I'm I'm not Maud anymore. I am Katie. I'm going to go out and drink. I'm going to go out and, you know, have sexual encounters with multiple people, you know, and, and she fully breaks. But I think the whole Maud creation is such an interesting element to it because it is, it's just a way for her to fully escape and then at the same time you have to wonder if there's some practicality to it because again we don't know what happened while she was katie as a nurse but her former colleague joy 
is like they're letting you be a nurse again. Like, so clearly it was yeah. bad enough <laughs> that it was like questionable, like, oh, you probably shouldn't be caring for patients anymore. So how much of it's just practical? I'm creating a new identity so I can continue working. Um, mm, mm-hmm. That's a good one. But but I think that's that's less fun to think about other than her just creating this whole new personality so she can dive headlong into this religious fervor that she's feeling. And I know just the whole idea of, you know, why she created a whole persona to me. And you had mentioned earlier that we see that cockroach Uh in the scene. Another thing that stood out to me in that opening scene where we, we don't really know what's happening to Katie. We, we learn it's Katie at that point. Uh, she there's a fly on the ceiling and she very much fixates on that fly and then it transitions us to where we meet Maud, uh, which it transitions through a it's a it's a beautiful shot of pasta sauce yeah yeah simmering which I think is just kind of a tremendous like I had never seen that before but 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 the idea of of the fly and I've read a lot about this and and Rose Glass has specifically said that she doesn't. She didn't intend it to be a possession story, but I think, you know, you and I, I'm sure, agree that once an artist makes something and puts it out there, it's fully open for interpretation. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of of lore and stuff around flies. Be, I mean, Beelzebub is the, the lord of flies. Yep. So f- flies and demons and stuff. And, and I almost, there was that moment right at the beginning and there was another moment where it's very clear that like she's kind of swimming out of whatever fervor she's in and she sees this fly. And it's almost like a, is it a grounding point of a possession? Is it something, you know, taking over her? Which I thought, and it was really this, last time today that I watched it, that that stood out to me so much where I'm like, you know, maybe that like we're, we're talking about this as religious horror and even the way that it stands as, as Rose glass says she intended it. And like you said, you know, it's, it's a parable of sorts, you know, it, it is a religious horror movie, but could it be an unconventional possession film? You know, could this all be driven by Maud being influenced by some sort of demonic force to cause her, you know, to do these things. I thought that too when I first saw it as well. Not not the possession necessarily. I find that a very interesting way to almost show like what it because now I want I, I want to watch it again now with that in mind because now it's like oh what what if it's us watching what it's like to be possessed you know from the perspective of the person being possessed you know you always have to question in these movies. Why is the consciousness of the human being not fighting nearly as much as the demonic entity is? You know, how are they puppeteering them so easily? And what if they do show you these things and try to convince you that you're having some sort of divine just experience? And so it's a slow but sure kind of contamination, if you will. But I did definitely think that, and that's why I put it in the synopsis as well, that there's a sense that perhaps she is talking to someone and perhaps it is pushing her to do certain things, but look at the things that she's doing. She's hurting herself. She's contemplating hurting other people. She feels 
unfulfilled all the time. She's only happy when she's looking at Bible scriptures and, and images of angels and stuff. That to me reads as something enticing her with the promise of fulfillment and beauty, but never letting her achieve it and really just walking her over to a ledge basically and seeing if she'll do it. Yeah. I think that that's a really good read on what's happening to her. And I think the fascinating thing about possession is the idea that generally people have about possession, especially for how it's portrayed in media is just like, you know, the supernatural, the TV. And I say that capital S like the TV show supernatural. Oh Um, yeah. Okay. Like that idea where all of a sudden this thing is in you, your eyes go black, you're completely taken over. Um, But like there are really stages to possession where it is being influenced and being overwhelmed. And until you get to that final stage of, being taken over um and so i think kind of like you talked is looking at as a the movie as a study of watching maud get pushed further and further down this path um you know because initially her intentions with amanda seem very innocent she she really has no particular intentions her thoughts are you know, I'm going to do this job where I'm with people who are dying. And it, she make, she makes a comment in her... She's kind of narrating in prayer for a lot of the movie. And, you know, it's something along the lines of, I think this one will be with you soon. So she recognizes that Amanda's very sick and she wants to be there to kind of help that transition. And Amanda opens it up to talking about religion, to praying with Maude to asking about her experiences. So I, I don't know that Maude ever went in with those intentions. It's just, they get those avenues get opened up by Amanda. And like you said, calling her the little savior, the look on Maude's face when Amanda calls her, her little savior is it's this moment of just like pure ecstasy because like, that's all she's ever wanted mm-hmm. as Maude. And to get that recognition, is just it's a perfect little moment and I think is part of why her fall is so hard because Amanda has built her up and and made her feel validated in her faith and then completely takes that away. And, you know, it not only ruins that relationship, but it causes Maud to question everything. And I think a person who's so fervent about the religion, when you make them question that it's a very dangerous thing. Um, mm-hmm. Cause that's like, it's so foundational for them that when you shake that foundation, it's really unpredictable what's going to happen. I mean, we need to look no further than the last two years to know yeah. what happened. And that's not always religious. A lot of True. it is linked to religion with the people who are doing this, but that's usually because these very people have their religion questioned by a lot of people and then it kind of gets it's just like a spill off into other things so any thought you have at that point if you're like oh i believed in that and somebody goes it's really not true well you did this about my faith so i'm gonna dig my heels in the sand on this one too and it it's just this whole spiral basically and i think mod as katie was like this as well because of 
the fact, at least when it comes to that elation on her face that you're talking about, I think that's why she became a nurse. She's probably always been really mousy and yeah. she seems very naive regardless. That's probably why it seems like she's been so devout for so long because she comes across as somebody who's extremely sheltered and raised religiously, uh, who doesn't know any better, who just went off into the city for the first time. And then come to find out she had a very well-adjusted city Londoner kind of lifestyle before this horrible event took place at the hospital. So my suspicion, at least based on the clues that we're given is that she got into healthcare in the first place to be people's saviors, to save them from their ailments. And then she's yeah. put in a situation where she actually ends up being the cause of somebody's pretty gruesome death because she doesn't know what she's doing. And at least I have no idea. We don't ever get shown the details. We just know that she has some visuals that are seared into her mind, like the cracking of the rib cage while she's doing the uh, CPR and stuff. But beyond that, I think the mod, the, the, at least the development of Maud was a great transition for the film to take place for her because she's, or at least it was a logical step, you know what I mean? That she's going to go from one type of savior to the next because now she chose to be somebody's religious savior or spiritual savior. The hospice care, I think, is also a great indicator of this because she, she basically upgraded for her feeling to... If they're already going to die, all I have to do is just be there for them. It's all you have to do. You do the basic nurse work that you were taught. You try to keep them as alive as much as you can. But when the time comes, it comes. And it's not your fault. It never has to be her fault ever again. Until, of course, she does uh, <laughs> take matters into her own hands by the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good read on it is, yeah, it's not only is Maud as a persona, a safety net for Katie, but even just, yeah, that type of nursing is a lot safer for her and, and allows her, yeah, to, to not have so much responsibility that it's going to spot. And cause I think too, there's one of my favorite scenes is when um, her former colleague, Joy shows up at Maud's apartment. Oh yeah. Um, because there's so much tension in this scene because you've just seen Maud invest. She has some sort of, I guess it ends up being whatever she lights herself on fire with, but it's some sort of chemical. And, and I'm, I'm not a scientific person, so I, you know, I thought it might be some sort of acid. Or, and then all of a sudden, Maud's looking at this chemical and Joy shows up and you can just feel the tension and the gears working. And for me, it was like, oh, no. She, she's going to kill joy. She's going to kill joy. She's it just over and over. I'm just thinking, cause you had seen Maud like burning a nursing uniform and it was just a lot is going on for her at that moment. And there's this intrusion and reminder of her past, but joy says something that's basically like, we all should have seen it coming with you, Katie. You know, we could tell you were overwhelmed and overworked and it's not your fault. It's, it's our fault. And mm -hmm. that that snaps, you know, it's one of those moments where Maud is looking off out the window and, you know, Joy is in the background talking and it's kind of fading and it snaps her back. Yeah. You know, and I think, again, it's that resolution of her guilt. It's saying, what you did wasn't your fault. You know, we should have seen that you needed help and we didn't. And 
whether or not Maud was thinking of killing her, um, it, it, like I said, there's a lot of tension there. I think you could definitely read that she potentially was. She snaps back and she's like, okay, you have to go. Thank you. And, you know, just kind of quickly ushers her out. Um, but it's it's a really, I, I really enjoyed that scene because it, it wasn't, it was that one of those glimpses into Maud's past and, and it really brought that tension and, and you're really at the breaking point for her because she's had her conversation with God. She's discovered her new purpose and, and this is one like last potential obstacle for her. And so it did a great yeah. job of, of presenting that and then allowing her to, you know, move on from it in a nonviolent and a non, you know, explosive way. So it still leaves you with, you know, if she had just killed her and then she's going to Amanda, you know, oh, wow, she's going to kill Amanda too. But here it still leaves that ambiguity of, well, maybe, maybe she is back on track. Maybe she is just going to save Amanda's soul in her own way. And and I think right. that's really well done. I mean, apart from the fact, I suppose, that it was marketed as a horror film. That if you know you're watching a horror film, you know, like, eh, the moment she gets to Amanda's house, you're like, well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you don't know what's going to happen, of course. Um, but that particular scene with Joy, I had an interesting relationship with it the first time I saw it versus the second time. Because the first time I watched this movie... I, my whole reading was through the lens of mental health okay. and just watching Maud struggle. I could relate a lot to a lot of the naivety that she had and just this feeling that, you know, I, as a child, by having ADHD, as a child, I did not pick up on things like sarcasm very well. So I thought people were just mad at me all the time uh, or thinking genuinely that I was incapable of doing things when they're just like, oh, yeah, well, because you're so bad at things. And I'm like, why would you say that? That's really hurtful when I didn't realize they were being sarcastic or, you know, they would, in my eyes, make promises, but they meant it sarcastically. They were never going to do those things. And I see that in Maude a little bit as well. So I was just watching it from that lens. And in that lens, I hated Joy so much in that <laughs> in her house because I was just like, get out of her house. You're just going to light up a cigarette in her kitchen, just kind of talk at her and notice, not even paying attention to the fact that your friend is just drifting off into La La Land. Um, it wasn't until this viewing today that I realized from the various layers of you know, in different lenses that you can watch the film from that I got that tension you were talking about that if you see joy staring at her, just like every now and then kind of glancing like, okay. And then when you pay attention to what she's saying, it becomes very obvious that she, for instance, okay. So what made me hate her at first, she comes in saying, Oh, I hope you don't mind, but I, uh, I found your address by looking it up in the hospital registry. Holy crap. That is such a, you know, invasion of privacy to do something like that. And that they would even let you do that. Unless, of course, we're talking about a person who is a risk factor either to herself or to other people. So, again, we don't know Maud's past very well. This is an indication that the hospital let this woman get her current address so that she could go check on her is basically what I, how I read it this time. And sure enough, as Joy's there smoking a cigarette, she's trying to act very casual. But she's just kind of looking around like, you seem to be doing okay, but it's a little too tidy in here. You've got a lot of religious stuff going on. You're staring out the window. You're not really talking to me. You're being very dismissive. 
So I think she was getting increasingly more concerned about the situation, especially based on the situation that took place. And I love that I was able to have those two different readings based on how I uh, was feeling at that moment, I, I suppose. But yeah, you're right. That the, the most recent viewing I had is perfectly in line with what you were talking about. This increased tension of like, what is Maud going to do right now? Because I don't trust her. Sure as hell didn't trust Joy at that moment. You know, there's a there's one movie that springs to my mind when I watch Saint Maud, and I wonder if it's because of this film or films like it that this movie got a little bit of flack when it came out. I've always liked Saint Maud, but I've heard a lot of people say you just have to enjoy it for what it is. You know, I think it re it reminds me a lot of May. Have you seen May? Yes, two. I have. That was one that I saw for the first time earlier this year, but yeah, Ooh. I can absolutely, I, yeah, it was one that, <laughs> one that I, I don't know why I hadn't seen it. It was just kind of flew under the radar. And actually mm -hmm. for the longest time, I thought it was Kat Dennings on the cover for whatever reason, the way her makeup <laughs> is in that angle. And Fair that enough. didn't make, that didn't make me avoid it by any means, but no. it just, it was funny when I, finally went to watch it i was like wait this isn't cat dennings uh, but <laughs> but but yeah i can absolutely see that where it's kind of you know the telling this weird story of this girl on her own who's struggling to fit in and yeah i think that there are a lot of parallels there for sure mm -hmm. and i think the the big kind of split between the two where they kind of drift off in different lanes is that maude doesn't really try to shock you nor is it about a character that is really finding any true confidence because it's all fake as you, I love the word you use she's a fraud so yeah. may is not a fraud may really thinks that she's found out who she is and what she needs to do she's looking for beauty that is what she wants she wants the perfect human being in her life and she feels that she's imperfect. Maybe she can perfect herself emotionally by making something physically perfect. And so she gets her parts, you know. That movie is so dark and so gut-wrenching. Every time I watch it, my heart just like flies up into my throat at certain scenes where I'm just like, I know it's going to happen. I don't want it to happen. I want so much joy for May. <laughs> uh, and with Maude, I mean, I want it for her as well, but she just has this kind of vanity to her that doesn't seem as genuine as May's. May really feels like somebody just needed to take her aside and say, do you know what you're doing right now? You're acting weird. And I worry about you. We see it with Maude. She's like, I worry about you. And Maude's like, hmm, what? Hmm. She doesn't really care. She's too focused on what she wants to do. And it's, I feel there's a lack of confidence in her to the very end. That's oh. why it's such a huge moment for her at the end of the film. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that, yeah, like you said, with you do, you feel for May because I think in part you see what she's gone through. You see parts of how her childhood was. So you have a lot of sympathy True. for Fair her. Enough. And obviously, she goes very much to the extreme, but you, you see kind of, you feel for her more so where Maud, you know, and to use an expression that might 
get overused, but I think is very appropriate. She's she has that holier than thou. <laughs> um, she has she has that attitude where yeah, she just even um, the, in one of the first interactions she has with Amanda, she's helping Amanda do kind of stretches and stuff, and her cross and medallion fall out, and Amanda's just kind of like oh hello and comments on it and. Maud says that she asks what saint it is, and she goes, "Oh, it's Mary Magdalene." And Amanda's like, "Oh, I didn't know they made medallions for Mary Magdalene." And Maud's just like, "I bought it on the internet." You know, it's this very dismissive, where she doesn't want to talk about it, and I think it kind of leans to that. You know, Maud hasn't been this religious person her whole life. She doesn't want to dive into the history of Mary Magdalene and her role and the Bible and all of those things. She's just like, ah, I bought it on the internet. You know, that's let's move on from there. They do make it. I have it. Please don't go further into it. Yeah. But I think it lends to that attitude that she has where she is very kind of dismissive and uppity almost where she's less relatable and you care less, you know, you, you don't want bad things for Maud by any means, but where in May you're rooting for May and although you see her spiraling, you you hope that she can come out of it. Where Maud, you're kind of like, well, she's kind of spiraling, and but she yeah. also you can tell she feels like she's better than everyone around her. I almost feel like Maud kind of wants to spiral, if that makes any sense. Like you know the type, like it's a very goth kid kind of attitude she has of like, oh, I have so much misery and pain, and really, but well, don't you kind of like your misery and pain? Misery and pain is all I have. It's the best thing in the world. You know, like, kind of like well, that. it's yeah. It's funny that you bring that up because, again, on this viewing, when she gives change to uh, the man on the street, you know, that's very early. Where she her exact quote to him is, "May God bless you and never waste your pain." Yep. And the theme of pain and wasted pain again. It was one of those things where I'm like. That phrase must get said six, seven, eight times in this movie, and it had never stood out to me before. And I don't know how it hadn't, but... And then you look at all the examples of where she's hurting herself. And, you know, initially it's very simple. She opens a bag of popcorn and kneels on the kernels. You know, it's a very small pain, but it's still a moment where she's causing pain for herself. She burns her hand on the burner. Obviously, the the most profound of those moments is the tax that she puts in her shoe. Oh, those um, tax. Yeah. And, and the, the Foley artist who created that squish, that squish. <laughs> I don't know what they did, but it's not only in that moment, the squish and the scream of that initial, but then as she's walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the moment where you truly see how far Maud has gone. Not only obviously physically, but the look on her face with each step that she takes of this excruciating pain she's inflicting on herself is she is in ecstasy. You know, she is fully gone yeah. in this experience that she's giving herself. And, and it's just, it's to that. But it's such an extreme, you know, dive into that. Because again, you know, the, the popcorn kernels, the burn. And, and I think it's interesting too, because at one point, you know, I was trying to kind of figure out all of those little moments and Maud is changing and she has scarring all across like the bottom of her stomach and it's scarring. So clearly it's old. And again, it's one of those things where you're like, wait a second, you know, is this Katie stuff? How long has Maud been Kate or Katie been Maud? Cause you don't, there's such an unclear 
passage of time from that opening moment to where we are now Uh um and so it but that was another thing to me where it's like ooh, you know there's there's depth and layers there like potentially even katie was someone who was using self-harm as a way to cope Um, yes even in ways that that we're not seeing And and i think you had mentioned mental health and i think there are a lot of mental health readings associated that you could associate with this movie um and i think i think it's important to not look like some sort of dissociative identity that sort of thing and mm-hmm. blaming what maud is doing on mental health i definitely don't think is what's happening you know both in what was intended and and what's happening in the film i don't think that's happening but i think looking at what she's doing as ways of coping with yes. what happened to her. And that's a moment for me where you can tell, you know, and then thinking of what Joy is saying. Well, you were struggling. You know, we didn't see it. So, like, clearly this person, Katie and Maud, has struggled with being able to cope with what's happening in her life for a long time. And so it kind of, you know, Maud as this this person, I think, is potentially another coping mechanism and the whole religious fervor and everything is a way to cope that just goes too far. Yes. And on the point of mental health as well, you're right. I've seen readings where people try to have it as a dissociative disorder or schizophrenia, something of this nature. And that is indeed a way to try to explain in a, you know, a nice neat little balled up term, for what we're seeing and and put the blame on something. And I, I'm more coming from the angle of say something like depression, where if you go deep enough in that hole, you start to seek out ways to make sure that you can get something, some sort of feeling that isn't that feeling. So I just want to make it a little clear for anybody listening. Like when I'm talking about mental health in terms of St. Maud, I more mean like any struggle she could be having, whether it's PTSD, depression, bipolar, just being unhappy. You know, this can drive people to very extreme things if they're not taken care of and supported. And in Maud's case, I think that indeed she has been using self-harm as a coping mechanism possibly even in a kind of sadomasochistic kind of way. Cause we also don't know if that's just a pleasure thing for her. We do get some glimpses of this when she meets the guy at the bar who's like, Hey, I think I've met you before. And he mentions how he had a threesome with her with another guy. Now he could just be a nasty dude. Cause we, you know, we do see that he and trigger warning for anybody who's ever had uh, to deal with sexual assault, but he does sexually assault her after she has a vision and he just continues to try to have sex with her when she says no. So he is a piece of garbage. But if we were to take what he's saying as any sort of truth, there's way more to Maud's past, especially Katie's past, of what she's done. And the only reason why I bring up sadomasochism is because of the little smile on her face, the, the way she looks back at God when he's talking. She kind of has this, do I have permission to do this kind of thing? And she really likes the fact that she has to punish herself for breaking away from her faith for a moment. I suppose like, and the thing I was getting at with May and her, I mean, I'm not a huge compare and contrast fan, but it's just the parallels are so strong to me. And I guess what makes me kind of go, hmm, with the character of Maud versus the character of May and the difference there beyond their pasts is also 
with Maud, you were talking about the moment with the tax on her feet, how proud she looks when she's walking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On one hand, I get it. You know, she's feeling pain. Nobody really knows. On the other hand, they totally know her shoes are bleeding and everybody yeah. can see it. And they're kind of like, what the hell is going on with her feet? And she's just really proud of the fact like, that's right. I'm being tortured right now. May has her moment. She has her kind of walk through the hall craft moment when she decides, I am a good seamstress. I am good at building things. I'm a pretty damn good taxidermist too. You know what? If I put some makeup on, I can be hot. I can be that doll. Why Why do I say that I can't be? So she decides to just come to terms with who she is, puts on some makeup, puts on a Halloween costume, and just feels empowered by it. And she's walking through the streets, and everybody's like, who, who's this girl? And she's like, you're damn right. It's me. But she's hiding her dirty little secret, which is, oh, I have scalpels and all kinds of equipment in this box, and you don't know what I'm about to do. And I think therein lies the big difference between the two. Maud really has that... <laughs> I'm blatantly showing and screaming to the world exactly what I'm feeling and doing and being very proud about the fact that I got the attention. Whereas May is just quietly being herself and getting the attention. And so I think anybody who has had those genuine insecurities with themselves, if you see that in May, what makes it so tragic is you're like, oh, you were so close to just having a very good ending to your movie. (laughs) And with Maude, we're kind of like, ah, you're that person. You know, Ugh, yeah. you gotta you gotta yeah. tell me about your feelings all the time, don't you? Yeah, I think Maud Maud is that person that as she's walking down the street in her bloody shoes, kind of in her moment, she's gonna look over at you and then like look down at her feet and then look exactly. back up at you and see if you're looking. And like kind of yeah. she's not gonna say anything, but she wants you to notice and she wants to notice you noticing. Yes. Where yeah, like May it, I think that moment for her is just very authentic. It's a very, it's, it's about her and her owning that side of herself and her trying to step out of her comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And on that note with vanity with Maud, which I think is her biggest sin. Yes. Beauty comes into this film in many different directions. So we have the beauty of the cinematography of the film itself, which we've already touched on very briefly. You know, we mentioned that she has her seizure and then starts to float. And the shot of that is just so gorgeous. The ending when she burns herself as as an angel is wonderful. But for me as an esthetician, I am really interested with the fact that it's all about her looking for the ideal. And so she's, so fixated on these old like renaissance paintings of angels and the revelation and these glorious larger than life golden angels and she just has it strewn all over her room and every single time she comes to like a new phase in her development we see her interacting with some sort of postcard or uh, a book or an image of some kind. And I felt that, and I don't, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this reading, but I really felt that a lot of what we're seeing is a strive for her to claim beauty as her own and be the vessel, if you will, in a angelic sense, you know, she's Saint Maud. She's not just Maud down the street. She's Saint Maud. So that's a high level of uh, praise that you're giving to yourself. And the saints, you know, people cry over them. They worship them. We have golden effigies of them. And I think that's what she's striving for is to be put into the annals of history in that way. 
Yeah, I I think that's the thing is mod, especially for someone who, you know, is so fervent religious. She dresses very modestly, and you know, mm-hmm. she's not wearing makeup. You know, it's but she is very very focused on aesthetic and on beauty. Both, like you said, you know, she has her religious book that. Amanda gives her that she goes through and she creates this kind of collage on her wall of all these different religious images. But even when she's first at Amanda's house, she's looking through things and looking at the books and looking at these posters. And, you know, she's clearly very enamored with how things look. And I think it carries over into, yeah, like they're, the moment too when she you know talking about her being saint maud you know there's the moment at the party at amanda's when that becomes the butt of the joke yeah uh when um, amanda calls her her little saint and everyone starts putting the napkin around her head to make her look you know that typical saintly look and and obviously that doesn't go well but then what you see later you know it's this kind it's almost funny where Maud is like taking this sheet and trying to arrange it around herself in her mirror and right. kind of like testing how it looks as she holds it up. And then she's like walking down the street just in the, like, and it, I think it's fascinating to look at. So she's so obsessed with the aesthetic just in general in her life, although she doesn't take it personally on herself and she focuses on that religion. But to see her go from that moment of, you know, playing dress up as a saint as this terrible, insulting moment that kind of shatters her world briefly to then being the one who dresses herself up. You know, it's yeah. more of that performance um, that she's kind of putting on this whole time, just taken to that next level. It's kind of fascinating to see how she moves from one side of that spectrum to the other. And it's interesting how that is a part of her shame as well, because. All of the religious stuff seems to be part of her shame. Every time she says anything remotely religious to people, it, it, people just, huh? Because they don't expect it. And she just runs away. So before you can ever actually engage with her on that level, she just has so much shame about it because I think part of her, you know, she knows that she's putting it on and that she just, it makes her unique. It makes her different from everybody else. So now she really has a reason to feel different from everybody else. Because before then, well, you must be doing something wrong, right? That's how it feels, at least. At least that's how it's always felt for me. Um, If you don't mind, I'd love to go into that quote that I brought uh, at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think this is a great segue into that. So the quote is from Plotinus, who I've actually quoted before here in the podcast. That was actually for the episode on Beyond the Black Rainbow. And this is from the exact same piece, but from a different part of that piece. So in the in Beyond the Black Rainbow, I actually quoted him talking about how would a an ugly soul look, a really dark, evil thing. And there's, you know, the main character in Beyond the Black Rainbow is just this just shell of a human being, basically, very soulless. And in this case, he's likening beauty to both intellect and to godliness so basically stating that to reach this feeling of the divine we need to or at least not we but in order to reach the feeling of the divine one needs to achieve a sense of beauty 
but also that beauty can only come from your reason and your ideologies. So the fact that you have logic, the fact that you can think well, that to Plotinus was one of the most beautiful things about the human soul is that we have reason. And that is what links us to God. It's still how they you know, were connecting things in philosophy at the time. And uh, he's a practitioner from, from Plato's time, so it's a, or a little later than that. So we're talking ancient here, about 5,000 years ago. <laughs> but I thought it was such an interesting quote in conjunction with St. Maud, because as I was saying, it seems like she's trying to strive for beauty. But as you pointed out, she's really into the aesthetic, that ugly word. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're thinking about, oh, well, she's got to wear the robe, right? She's got to look at the heavens and be in awe of everything all the time. She has to speak in a particular way. Whereas Plotinus is like, yeah, but you have to have the right reason and heart and soul and the, the drive that is correct to really be beautiful as a human being. And I just think that this is a great contrast to what we see in Maud, but also in a way what she's trying to achieve, but she doesn't exactly have the reason or the intellect to take that next step to know that's what she needs. Yeah, I think, and that's, I think kind of how we talked about is she's not from what we can tell someone who's been religious her whole life. Yeah. You know, this is, it's such a new thing for her that yeah it's you know she has these ideas but there's no depth to anything so she doesn't have that foundation that intelligence you know that logic behind any of it to be able to truly get to where she's trying to go and i think that's why you see you know that moment when she backslides into being katie again you know is because of that it's because she's everything's falling apart around her and she's not able to do what she's trying to do. And so she has that momentary lapse where she goes back. And I think it's again, you know, it's showing the lack of depth in, in Maud and the person she is and those religious beliefs she's, she's brought, which I think lend to the quote of just, there has to be, you know, yes, you know, God and that connection with God is important and is beautiful, but without the proper, you know, things to get you there and and to maintain your presence there, it's just not going to work. Yeah. I think the part of the quote for me that jumps out the most in this context, especially based on the conversation we've been having is he said here is for intellection. So for the intellect, and all that proceeds from intellection, so all the things that you can do with a good intellect, they are the soul's beauty. So that is the beauty of the human soul, is the fact that we can think reasonably, rationalize the things, and the things that we produce through being rational are the most beautiful part of us. But this is the kicker. A gracious native to it and not foreign, for only with these is it truly soul. So in a way, she's a soulless person because she is not doing something native to herself. She's picked up something foreign, a, a form of cultural appropriation, actually. And because of that, there is no heart and soul in what she's doing. It's just kind of monkey see, monkey do. I just do what the religious people do. And then I guess I'm religious too, because I say so. 
but there's no understanding of the, the the golden rule or any of these these teachings and parables or what it means to go to heaven. She never mentions heaven by name, as True. far as I can yeah. recall. Yeah. She's only talking about the divine, and I think they mentioned the hereafter is a is a phrase that's used. Yeah, because even in one of those earlier moments where Amanda is connecting with Maud to a certain extent about religion, you know, Amanda's admits to being scared uh, about there being nothing. You know, she knows she's dying and she's afraid there's nothing. And Maud is, you know, like she's, she says there's not nothing, but she also then immediately is like, and there's, there's not nothing here now, you know? So it's, she Uh doesn't focus on, yes, she says, okay, yeah, there's not nothing after this, but there's also not nothing now. She's still so focused in the now and not focused on, on heaven on that idea, even though you would think someone as religious as her in a role as a hospice nurse, that would be your focus would be the idea that you're going to help these people transition. You know, you know, Amanda is close to death and you could be the person that saves her soul before she allows her to go to heaven. But that's not where her head is at. And I think, yeah, a lot of that is because this is, it's so new to her. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, she doesn't have that foundation to have those thoughts. I also think that, as we were saying, that you know the big critique that we can have on most of Western Christianity is more the organized religion aspect of it. The fact yeah. that people have decided to make a system around it. And what you see in Maud is the ugliness of the organized part of it because she's a, by being so naive and being so detached from the true worship practices and belief behind it, she exposes a lot of the attitudes that say preachers and these mega churches have, and you know, the ones with their really fancy suits and their, their jets and they really care about you go into them for the information. They're not so big on you, like reading the Bible at home and really believing and talking to your family and then building a community with your beliefs. They're really like, come to my church, you know, donate to us. Just, just help us out. This is I. I am the practitioner and the vessel and the voice of God. I, I'm your direct through line. That is all she cares about. In that moment with Amanda, it is so strange to me that she would kind of gloss over, like, well, you know, there's, there's, there's more later, uh, and there's more now because she's the one who sees the truth. She is the one that needs to be seen as this spokesperson for the divine. Yeah, I think it's not important to Maud that Amanda is saved. It's important to Maud that Maud saves her. Exactly. And I think that's that's where the difference is. It's the person who truly feels that connection and calling is, you know, I want you to find God however you find God. Where that that preacher or in this case Maud is saying I want you to find God because of me. Yes. It's like when you get to the pearly gates, tell the mod sent you. That's yes, exactly. You are my clout for God, basically. Yeah. And I've been to those churches. I hated every single second of it. You can tell when a preacher's kind of thumping their own their own Bible, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna write it my yeah. way. And yeah. I've been to a few that I adored. And I'm I have not held on to it personally. I have like I have a very uh, complicated relationship with uh, a lot of Western religion. But, you know, when I go home, I'm not like, I'm not going to church. It's church. No, I'm not going to specific churches. Sure. Because yeah. they're, they're church to me. But we had communities. We had people who just 
believed the same things. And even if you didn't believe the same thing, they were really happy to see you and they wish God would bless you today. That felt so honest to me. And I liked being around that because when I told people when I was getting older, I don't know. I don't really know if I believe the things that you believe and what you were saying the way that you say them. Well, one church just told me, oh, I hate, I hate that you're going to burn in hellfire. Another church told me, that's a shame, but you know, you'll find your path. And as long as you know, you take our teachings, you're still going to have a good life. So at the very least, just don't forget the, the good that we try to teach you. And I think that's exactly what a good preacher is. They're really just trying to teach you how to navigate the world, basically, and find a way to cope with the terrors that we have around us at all times. Because I mean, we got to survive emotionally and spiritually as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Yeah, they're trying to give you tools to take on your journey. And that's the thing with Maud is Maud doesn't have any of those tools. You know, she's <laughs> not a single one. <laughs> she's on this journey just completely on her own without any of that. Exactly. And in a way, I do find that quite beautiful. I think it's the beauty of a flawed, severely flawed and imperfect human being is breathtaking at times to watch in a movie like this well that's that's the thing i think again you know talking at at different moments about the beauty of this movie and outside of just the visual things i think yeah i mean there are moments and i did a lot of reading especially initially after i had watched it and and in researching it to write it um and rose glass you know has given a couple of really insightful interviews and i think the thing is, you know, she she there are a few very distinct moments where Maud experiences God, where like to the point, you know, the lights are kind of dimming and pulsing, right? And and Maud gets overtaken, and Rose Glass refers to them as Godgasms, <laughs> um, yes, because because there's this level of ecstasy that yes, it's a religious ecstasy, but there's also like a sexual element to it and you know there there's a couple and ma you know in these moments she kind of gasps and her head goes back and her face really stretches and uh-huh. i learned that they actually in post-production used effects to make her face even more distorted okay in those moments and it so like having known that and seen it since then it's kind of fascinating to watch and you really do see you know, her, her face stretching, her mouth opening. But, but I think, yeah, it's those, those are beautiful moments to me. And, and I think I kind of touched briefly on that just in the introducing, you know, why I had brought this movie and what I found beautiful. But yeah, I mean, those moments, like you said, imagining this person who is chosen solely on their own, to dive deep into this faith journey. You know, they don't have a foundation in their life from it. They don't have parents or a community who's influencing them down this road. You know, Maud has sought this out. I mean, for all, all we can tell on her own and has completely dived headlong into this with a fervor and an ecstasy and seeing those moments where she does have the positive reaction to things and the positive happened to her they're beautiful uh you know and and imagine especially as someone who has you know grown up in a very faith-filled you know house and and going to church all the time and then having 
you know, in many ways drifted from that, you know, there's, a, there's almost those times where you're like, I wish I could feel what she's feeling. Right. You know, obviously <laughs> Maud is very misguided um, <laughs> ultimately, but I think in those moments, that is what she's searching for. And it's, I think what a lot of people are searching for, you know, mm-hmm. it's that feeling of connection with something, you know, whether it's with other people or with God or with some higher power or just with nature, you know, people are constantly looking for that connection. And I think there's real beauty in those moments where Maud finds it. And I think, again, you know, a lot of that goes to Rose glass, you know, for how she's constructing the scenes and writing them and, and the direction she's giving a lot of that goes to cinematography. And then I mean a huge, huge portion goes to Morphid Clark because I think, yeah. Oh yeah. Seeing her in this, I'm like, put her in every movie, everything, every, literally everything I want. And yeah, so I think that there's, there's true, true beauty in that, you know, even outside of just the, the idea of it outside of what the movie presents to you of being able to, find a path and you know just Maud is sprinting down this path as fast as she can you know despite all the stuff that's tripping her up and the branches whipping her in the face and all that like she is going headlong and there is although it's dangerous and scary there is something beautiful in the ability to do that Oh, yeah. In a way, she does achieve her goals, especially as a fictional character, of course, because we get to watch it and and see this whole transcendence. So it may all be a bit farcical in in nature, but to an extent, I mean, can we say that she doesn't go through the same process that any other character in a parable probably went through? You know, we hear constantly in the Bible of people who just heard a message from an angel or from God and then boom, they changed their lives and it went hard. People let themselves get whipped and died and, and do just all kinds of in like intense stuff for their newfound faith overnight. And I think Maud really, really wants that. And so she's holding on to it as hard as she can to make it work. And Hey, by the end of it, she does get what she wants, even though it is the most extreme pain imaginable by setting herself on fire but we also know that she has some sort of pleasure in the pain so yeah she could be in the purest of ecstasy in that moment where we're seeing her screaming we don't know that could be one of those godgasms right there well yeah i think that's the thing in that last moment you know that's i think for a lot of people the most talked about moment and i understand why because it, it's so jarring it, it's like the last two seconds you're watching her she she is in that moment of ecstasy. That's what you see yeah. initially is Maud, angelic, flames around her, but but not burning. You know, flames are a big part of Christian religion and that yeah. imagery. And But then it cuts to that two seconds of screaming and really burning. And, and that's to me where it's like almost what Maud is seeing and feeling and what the world is seeing and feeling. Right. Um, and, and I think... But that's where she has achieved because Maud isn't feeling the burning and the death. Maud is feeling that transcendent ecstasy she's searched for this whole time. And and I think what's fascinating to me is that, you know, another thing that Rose Glass had said is that it was her uh, kind of a, the germinating idea or one of them was 
the idea that back in the Middle Ages or, you know, before that even, if you heard God, you were revered. It was a miracle. People believed you and wanted to hear what God had told you. Right. Whereas what would happen now? If you hear if exactly. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, you sing Maude, Maude is hearing God and it's not the same, but I think on the same token, you know, you look at so many figures who became saints or, you know, just prominent religious figures were martyred. You know, that was Mm -hmm. a huge part of that's one of the like fast track steps to becoming a saint is martyrdom. You know, it's like you have to hit a couple criteria, but oh wait, you were a martyr? Boom. We're, you know, you automatically go up the next notch. Um, so I think it's kind of fascinating to look at, you know, whether you can consider her a martyr since she does it to herself, right. you know, is, is debatable in, in, on the religious side of it. But yeah, I think it's, it's that element where she's a woman, a faithful woman who, you know, hears God and was burned to death for it. Now mm-hmm. she burned herself to death for it, but it's, it has a lot of those markers for you know what makes a good saint disregarding the fact that she just murdered someone before that but you know (laughs) well even then you know every saint has had some sort of you know thing that they've done you know there's been an event they've they've achieved something and in some cases it has been you know violent because it was all in the name of god you've had crusaders you've got uh, yeah. You know, look at St. Patrick. He killed a bunch of snakes. So, like, yeah. you know, so you also have animal torture included in all this. And it's all in the name of the Lord. So, you know, if we were to look at this as a story within the Bible and say that she actually makes it into the Bible, she reaches that martyrdom, then yeah. what people see is a woman who is so devout that she could not only hear God, but she could see when this woman was actually tainted by the devil. And she freed her body from this possessed figure. And, you know, we hear about possessions and stuff all the time. Look at the whole story of Legion and, and, and stuff. So yeah. it could be a similar situation. And then she cleansed herself with fire due to being tainted by the demon. Yeah. The only thing that pulls you back out of it and then brings it back to this contemporary film and the horror film aspect of it is the knowledge that it's the fact that she wants it. Yeah, exactly. Wanting it. And no saint has been like, I think I'd like to be a saint. That's my goal. Exactly. (laughs) They were just so strong in their faith that they were willing to, like, if I have to die for my faith or to save these people or whatever, I'm willing to do that. But Maud Maud takes that into her own hands. Oh, you're not going to burn me? Because I'll I'll go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And, you know, we see how she views the world, too, at that moment. So she sees herself with the, the very gentle flames and the big angel wings. And everybody's dropping to their knees to, like, revere her and pray for her. Like, no, they're rolling around on the ground crying and screaming because they're watching somebody burn to death. Because yeah. we hear them screaming before she's even lit the lighter. And had that worldview right there. That is it. Like, she just creates the reality that she needs to have to suit whatever whatever it is that she's trying to mask or run away from is what this is, you know, in service of, basically. And that is where the horror kicks into me, at least, is, is this the fact that we have somebody who's just so troubled that 
there's she's so far gone that unless you were to really like hold her down and force her into therapy, you're not going to get through to her. No. Yeah. She's especially at that point, once she has, I, I honestly don't even think it's once she's killed Amanda. Cause I think it's, it's once she has actually spoken with God that she is yeah. set on that path. And one of the things, a little, you know, Easter egg type of thing that I find fascinating and perfect is that the voice of God is Morphid Clark. Yeah, I love that. Speaking Welsh just deepened. I think like that to me when I found that out, I was like, oh my God, it's so perfect. Yep. Because she's literally talking to herself. Like, so you can't, like, that's Rose Glass saying, look, this is not ambiguous. Mm -mm. This woman, this is all in her head. You know, she's literally talking to herself in the voice of God in this moment to convince herself to do whatever she's going to do, you know, but it's also, it just, that to me, was such a cool thing to learn. And just, again, you know, it, it, to me, it makes it fun because yes, like there's that reading and the intention that Rose Glass had, but then it's like, but no, but what about this moment? And, you know, like... What if she is hearing God? You know, how is she, where is that voice coming from? Is it internal? Is it external? You know, is it her conscience? Is it her subconscious? Like, you know, even if you're telling me it's her, you know, there's still a lot more depth to that. Yeah. For, for one, it just feeds the whole reading of the, the vanity. How yeah, vain can it, you be that the voice of God is your own damn voice? That's, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. What does God sound like? Probably me, just <laughs> Probably. a couple octaves lower. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, I get the feeling that Rose Glass saw the witch because it is such a what's thou like the taste of butter kind of scene. But the yeah. difference is you actually see the devil in the witch you just True. get a glimpse you see his uh, legs pass by her and so we're just seeing thomason straight on and we're not actually seeing what she's seeing but we know that she's looking at something that like he's there he's pushing yeah. a book in front of her and in saint maud we actually get it's like rose just looked at it and was like i'm just gonna show the shrine and there's nothing there because that yep. cockroach disappears yep and it, that is the weirdest part of it is that it's hard to argue at that point because at least in the witch, there's something tangible. We're like, I don't think this is ambiguous anymore. <laughs> and in, in this case, yeah, it stays kind of ambiguous, but indeed, once you get all the little clues there, uh, the picture becomes a little clearer as we go on. Yeah. And that's, I, th I think it was the second time. I watched it because I, I watched it initially was blown away and very shortly after like it's like I need to dive into this again and mm -hmm. after Maud has that moment she there's a scene where she goes and talks with the woman who is now Amanda's nurse yeah um, and she's walking and I'm looking at her and all of a sudden I'm like oh my god Maud has two different colored eyes oh yeah yeah and for me, like, I, you know, I spent time, I was going back through the movie and trying to find, like, has she always had two different colored eyes? Is this, <laughs> you know, some new thing that's happened because she's finally, you know, spoken with God and, and come to find out that she had 
contacts in to make her eyes different colors the entire movie but really yeah so that was where it looks like it happens later in the film i know interesting thing yeah that was my thing is i was like this just happened and there's that scene you can see it really prominently Uh, and then that scene we talked about with joy where maude is looking out the window yeah that's where i noticed it yeah that's where you can really see it um but no apparently uh that was something that rose glass had morphic clark where Okay. Uh, the different colored contacts because that heterochromia, I think it's called, That's where you have called, two yeah. different colored eyes for a long time was taken as like a sign of potential like witchcraft. Yes. And so it was like a subtle nod of her. But what's fascinating is the the one the big article I wrote about this movie was talking about the shadows and how it's shot so that almost all the time when you see Maud, part of her face or half of her face is somewhat in shadow you know sometimes yeah. it's literally like a complete you know dark you can't see on one side light on the other but the movie really plays with that a lot and by doing that you really can't see both of her eyes until later in the movie That's and so it, it kind of yeah it, it was one of those things that jumped out to me it was like i figured it out i figured it out <laughs> you know this is the moment and then i was like oh well I didn't figure it out, but I still really like my reading and I'm going to write about it. <laughs> and I'm going to write it anyway. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought it was just kind of one of those things that, yeah, it was, there was intention from the director that didn't necessarily go as planned, but then, mm-hmm. you know, provided additional depth to the movie anyway, which I think is in many ways beautiful. You know, it's one of those things where you see, something kind of organic happening mm-hmm. within a movie, you know, I think it's just kind of a wonderful thing to see all of those pieces coming together on their own to, to have a new effect that no one necessarily planned. Yeah. That's lovely. I, I had not noticed that at all. Yeah. I guess the kind of accidentally too, if you're like really going with like a fine tooth comb throughout the film, I'm sure people have probably even noticed early in the film, like, Sometimes her eyes are blue, sometimes her eyes are brown. And really, it's just half of her face is kind of covered with shadows. So you can't see her eyes very well. Yeah. That is so interesting. I had no idea that she had her eyes that way the whole movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, see, this whole conversation has made me have to watch this movie again. I know. And I say, I feel <laughs> I that too. It. And I, I exactly, I just <laughs> watched it this morning and I'm like, oh man, I need to go back through again. It's such a rich film and for such a short film too. I love that this movie just like hits the ground running. We're yep. just like, we're in it. Maud is here. She's preaching to you. You're in her world. And eh, here's the hospice care. We're going to do it now. And you're like, holy crap. Yep. Like this, <laughs> this woman's life. <laughs> I, no, you're, you get no time to warm up or anything like that. Cause it's not a typical horror movie. It's more like the horror of humanity than anything else. Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah. Cause it's too, you know, in that initial scene, as she's praying and narrating, she mentions this like horrible stomach pain. And that kind of right. like comes up several little times throughout, but you get no explanation. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, we don't know why it's happening. We don't know why it's continuing to happen. She doesn't have an explanation, but you are so just thrown into the story mid story that it's just kind of like, oh, well, yeah, this is part of her and her life, but, you know, it's not important. We are going to bring it up, but it's, we're not going to explain it, you know, because we're so just on this journey with her. Exactly. Like we're not going to explain her history and her journey too much. We're going to let you experience that, but we're going to just give you enough to 
mold our character out of clay so that there are enough facets about her on a almost uh, somatic level. Just what does she feel in emotionally, but physically, like how does she walk through the world? What's her pain levels? What, what, what kind of food does she like? The fact that we open with the pasta sauce. Now it's a great thing with blood and pasta. It's a great transition, but oh yeah, it, it doesn't have that tongue in cheek vibe that a slasher movie would have had. It really is this kind of like the blood is the life kind of thing. Yep. And it's so mod to really get into like tomato based foods because it looks like the blood of Christ, you know? Yep. And I like those little details that they put together with her. So there's one last thing I'd like to talk about. I mean, it doesn't have to be the last thing, but uh, for, for my notes, at least one thing we haven't talked about at all. And it's the thing that is just not really discussed a lot in aesthetics. Anyway, it makes me sad is the score, the sound. Yes. There's almost none. Mm -hmm. And when it's there, it is booming. It just shakes the speakers, basically, from this this large drone that comes out to kind of show the almighty, basically. I love it. Yeah, I think, like you said, the score is very minimal in terms of how like how often it's used uh-huh. but i think like a scene that stands out for me is the the levitation scene for many yeah. reasons but that's a scene where the score is just like just swelling into that moment you know it just it adds so much to what's going on there and and that's the thing i think that's so special about it is that it's really you know you can get a phenomenal score that's kind of running under the movie the whole time and and that can be wonderful but i think Mm -hmm. this one has these you know almost every time it's like a crescendo of like it just comes in and takes over the scene in a great way and really adds to whatever's happening and then completely goes away and then swells up again at a moment that i think is really fascinating and especially for a movie so that's so quiet i mean Maud's a very quiet character very mousy and then for her like soundscape to just have this intense, just bombacity to it is it's quite an interesting juxtaposition that really shows what's going on inside of her. You know, yeah. uh, I especially liked the sound design too, with the different sound effects, uh, specifically the vortexes. Whenever she would see them appearing in people's drinks, or she'd see yeah. it in the sky. I liked how the vortex itself also got bigger as the film went along. Yeah. Every time she, like, it didn't matter how small it was. You just heard this, like, kind of sound as it was, like, it's coming, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think it was small, impactful moments of sound. You know, the score was these big things. But like we already mentioned, the, the tax, you know, the squish is really is really impactful but even when she burns her hands very loud yeah you hear the sizzle like you hear that searing sound of her flesh on the stove Mm -hmm. you know it's those little moments that i think yeah that are really impactful and that are highlighted by the silence in pretty much everything else because that's the thing you know a lot of it too you know ma doesn't speak a ton in the movie no you know you get a lot of prayer narration from her, but the amount that she's actually speaking is very minimal. And even when she does, it's typically kind of like shorter 
clipped sentences. You know, it just she's she's quiet, she's soft spoken, and so even very small moments where like sound is prominent really stand out. And funnily, now that you mentioned it, I don't remember her shouting anything in the film. I mean, she screams a couple of times, but nothing verbalized is no because even in in like what is probably outside of the final confrontation with her and Amanda, probably the biggest one is at the party mm-hmm. and she slaps Amanda. She physically yeah. responds, but even, you know, she's exceedingly quiet in that moment when she's being shamed and made fun of and confronted. She very stoically and quietly, you know, I have other things to do. I have better things to do. You know, like she's not, I'm not worried about what you're doing because I'm worried about what God wants me to do, you know, but it's never, she never shouts or anything, which, yeah, I think pointing that out, it Maud's quiet throughout the film is really fascinating. I have a theory that Katie wasn't as quiet, by the way, just because when she tells, I think her name is Carol, the, yeah. Uh, yeah the, so lover prostitute, uh, that Ma- Amanda hooks up with a lot. Yeah. She eventually tells Carol, like, I think you're a bad influence and you're kind of distracting her while she's dying. Is basically what she says to her. Like she needs yep. to focus on dying right now and not, not on you, which is a very strange thing to say to somebody. But I loved how she said, like, I haven't raised my voice or caused a scene as if that makes mm-hmm. your whole argument reasonable. Like, no, yeah. you're still saying something incredibly unreasonable and very rude but you're acting like, but I didn't yell. So it makes me think that she used to be a kind of person who would raise Kane and yell at people and throw fits and, and really show her emotions. But because she's Maud now, that's the new attitude. When you're devout, you are quiet. You know, Joan of Arc silently cried on the stake, you know, yep. single tears coming down her face. Yeah. She didn't scream to everybody, but they're all going to go to hell or anything. Yeah. I do think that's a very interesting juxtaposition there between those two characters. Uh, I mean, granted, we don't know for sure about Katie, but just the little tidbits we we get. I mean, the fact that Joy is so on edge around her, she's looking at her like, why are you so quiet? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, her, her, her quietness unnerves people. They don't yeah. know how to react to it and respond to it. And, and I love in that moment with Carol, like Maude confronts her. And then Carol, like, goes to leave, and Maud kind of, like, jumps back. Like, she thinks Carol's going to, like, hit her. And she's yeah. like, what are you doing? And Carol's like, I'm leaving. She goes, oh, it, I, you're leaving. Oh, okay, it worked. Uh, okay. okay then, like, uh, and, like, she's surprised that the confrontation worked. And obviously, it didn't really work. You know, no. that becomes clear. But, but yeah, it's it's in that moment where, yeah, I, I think you're right that, you know, Maud is emphasizing how well she's handling this. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not yelling. I'm not making a scene. I'm just telling you that you can't see this woman anymore who I have no authority over. And, <laughs> and who I've and known for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And who's paying you to be her companion. So it's not, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a moment where it's again, that self-importance of, yeah, look how good I'm acting about this. So you must listen. And it's the same you see all over, you know, the internet when you have all these crazy videos that come about when people are trying to like call the cops on African Americans because they're like, well, this person's accosting me when they're being really calm. I'm being calm and no, they're they're in my space. And when they're doing some really 
insidious shit trying to get somebody like shot and killed by the cops. Yeah. Or you have just simple like anti-maskers. Like some will raise cane and you know, we tend to laugh at those people, but there are others who are just really quiet. Like, could you give me a legitimate reason as to why you feel the way you feel? I'm sorry, I'm not raising my voice. I think what I'm asking is very, very reasonable. Take note, anybody who's listening, if somebody talks to you that way, they are not being reasonable. Yep. If they demand an answer, then they're not being reasonable because you have every right to say, I don't care enough to talk to you about this. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. And Maud is a really good example of one of those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you're doing terrible things to her and her response is so stoic and calm, like it's, that's generally not good. Not, and add to the fact that they tell you I'm being calm. Exactly. Yeah. You should calm uh, yeah. down. <laughs> Yeah. Ridiculous. And yeah, if you compare that with the, the sounds, I think we get a good example of what's going on inside her head. And if you want to use the word her soul, basically, it's very yeah. rapturous and loud and uh, chaotic. Honestly, a lot of chaotic sound whenever it hits the the stinger that you get with the name St. Maud. They do at the be- you know, they bookend it at the beginning and the end. It's just so over the top. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you really think you're about to enter the most death metal kind of movie. And it's just this quiet little, like, frail Welsh girl. <laughs> yeah, that made, it made me think of the Insidious stinger. It, yeah, um, exactly. Especially that first Insidious movie where, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, it's really jarring. And then Insidious is another movie where it's, it is a quieter, you know, slow, not as much as St. Maud is. But yeah, I think that's a good thing too. Yeah, it's. It's out of place almost, but yeah, it makes it memorable too because it's this thing that bookends it and this, you know, sets you off. And and I mean, I think it is it more fits in with what's happening at the end. You know? Oh yes, <laughs> screaming, burning, crash to this, you know, wow. stinger of yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, then, uh, do you have any other notes or any parts of the film that you're also really eager to talk about before we wrap up? Um, I think for the most part we hit, I'm looking through my notes and I think we hit everything. Uh, there were two small things. One I had mentioned with the fly and how you see the fly at the beginning mm-hmm. and then one other scene. And I remember like the other scene where you see it is before she levitates. Um, ah, yeah. so she looks over again, sees the fly and then levitates. So to me it was again, what was kind of deepening that, thought of potential possession or demonic influence of some sort just again with that tie and especially it being in such a you know you see it at the beginning at potentially the creation of Maud, and then you see it again in the levitation scene which the levitation then leads into um, her speaking with god so i think it to have a, specifically a fly focused on in both of those moments to me uh, i think was significant before you get and, to the second one, uh, yeah. I, I just want to interject on that because uh, one thing I've also just thought about in those two scenes is uh, both of them have a lot of shadow and a lack yeah. of you know a natural source of light. Not just because it's nighttime in the scene where she levitates, but it gets darker. It's one of those scenes where the yeah. shadows start taking over the room. And I do yeah. find it interesting that it it's basically like her trauma comes back. Like she sees the fly and then she immediately goes back to that hospital room where it was super dark and the lights weren't. And granted, we don't know if it's actually dark in there. Hospitals are usually never dark, but 
I, I did find it interesting that she was basically like in this really gross CD looking kind of saw trap looking kind of hospital room. Yeah. <laughs> and again, if this is from like Maud's perspective, then the link between the fly could indeed tr- you know, be some sort of darkness that's connected to her that it always pushes her to go find some sort of divinity. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, the, the other thing, which is really small is I'm pretty sure that the lighter she uses to light herself at the end is Amanda's lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. And, yeah. and I th- like, that was something again, watching it today, the amount of like the sound of the lighter, that clicking, it amazed me how it stood out throughout the movie as Amanda's constantly lighting cigarettes. You know, she's going into the bathroom, lighting a cigarette. Maud comes back when she, Amanda has the man over and things are going badly. She takes a cigarette out of Amanda's hand and Amanda immediately puts another one up and lights it. You know, it's (laughs) kind of a, it's a constant thing. And so to me, it was like kind of fascinating that like this, this little clicking throughout the movie so small. And then obviously so impactful there at the end. And then it also made me think, did she not plan to kill herself prior to killing Amanda, you know, cause we see her looking at the chemicals, you know? So like she's, you think that maybe she's already having those designs in her head, but then the fact that she used that lighter, you know, meaning she did like, she didn't have a source of fire with her presumably until that, you know, it was kind of one of those, it was a little thing that made me just kind of think deeper into how planned and how much motivation there was behind what she was doing. I agree. I think that she was planning it. In fact, I think the whole reason she was going to see Amanda was probably just to say goodbye. Yeah. To say like, I'm about to go to a higher plane. I know my purpose. And then she notices the evil that she has to stomp out. But I also don't think that's where she gets the lighter. Cause I recall, uh, I think it was after the levitation, possibly even after joy enters her apartment that we see her sitting on the bed with a lighter and she's practicing to see if she can get it to click exactly oh. when she wants the flame to pop out. So okay. again, this vein, just practice yeah. of it has to be dramatic. I have to go click and set myself on fire. That's okay. what she wanted. Uh, okay. Cause now, that well, now I need to watch one. it again. Yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All the reasons to watch it again. Cause now yeah. I don't remember exactly where this was in the movie, but I do remember her being in her apartment. It's going like click. Click, okay. click, like obsessively for a bit. But it could be like the night she got fired too, for all I know. It could be early. Yeah. Though. Yeah. So she probably stole it from her then. But yeah, great observation that uh, I didn't really catch that it was Amanda's until you mentioned it. It's like, it was a really fancy lighter, wasn't it? So gotta be Amanda's. All right, then. Well, then I think we can wrap up because we've gone through quite a bit so this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a screen pod squad be sure to follow the anatomy of screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective semi-academic and fun podcasts including the scream teens with gory Corey and lena white ladies in crisis hosted by jen adams anatomy of a scream's own joe lipset and gina radcliffe and much, much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. So, dear listeners, 
what are your thoughts on St. Maud? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod or via email at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. There's also this newly formed community space on Discord that we can talk about this as well. So be sure to check out my Twitter page for information, the link to the server. It's completely free to join. So we would love to see you there. If you want even more content, you can become a subscriber on our coffee page. That's ko dash fi ko-fi coffee whatever you want to call it there are multiple tiers to choose from depending on your interests the awesome thing is that all tiers get access to a new monthly podcast entitled the good the agreeable and the beautiful in which i will review a film chosen by subscribers based on Kant's judgments of taste it's a great way to talk about the subjective and objective properties of a film while having a bit of fun and talking about you know taste so visit Kofi coffee ko fi.com slash beauty horror pod for details on the various options. I want to thank you again, JD, for sitting down with me and talking about a movie that I absolutely love and one that I appreciate even more than I did the first few times that I've seen it. Where can all the listeners find you on the socials? And is there anything out there that you would like to plug? Yeah, I want to say thank you again for having me. Uh, it was a phenomenal discussion. And oh, like I, I said, I'm I'm ready to go watch it again <laughs> with these <laughs> new insights that we've come to um, and, and dive into it. So that's a phenomenal way to, to feel about a movie. Um, at the biggest place you can find me on social media is on Twitter. It's just at JD Gravit, my name. Um, you know, that's I spend the vast majority of my social media time there um do a lot of just talking about horror movies and promoting podcasts and and everything like that so definitely feel free to follow me over there uh, interact with me i'd love to talk about saint maude or anything really um like i said i you know you mentioned it briefly in the beginning i'm working on a podcast of my own mm-hmm. um right now i'm hoping to launch it in mid-september i'm kind of working on building up a little bit of a back catalog of episodes okay. so that i have some buffer um in terms of releasing because just i you know i've got kids and work and <laughs> i just say i i have busyness in my life so knowing that i can have some in in the tank and and not miss any releases is, is what i'm going for now but that's that, wise yeah that podcast is going to be called not the original a remake reboot and sequel podcast um, so the idea is i'll be sitting down with a guest and talking about one of their favorite overlooked remakes reboots or sequels so oh, yes man. we all love scream 2 and back to the future part 2 and you know there are those kind of tentpole sequels and stuff that people love, but I want to talk about the ones that people don't love enough um, (laughs) that you really love. So, um, and we, you know, I talked in kind of why I love horror about that period in the aughts. And that's kind of where the idea came from. You know, there was a lot of constantly talking with people on Twitter about, you know, Oh man, like house of wax is phenomenal. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the new, like the 13 ghosts remake, the, Yeah. Friday the 13th remake. So many of those are fun and great. And so many people just automatically crap on them just because they're a remake or a reboot yep. or whatever. And so I really wanted to, you know, take some time to celebrate those type of movies. So like I said, that I'm looking to debut in mid September. And, you know, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it sounds wonderful. I can't wait to check that out. 
So, uh, and then the other thing, um, I recently had a piece published over at Certified Forgotten. It covers a movie called Hangman's Curse, which is um, from 2006. It's um, Leighton Meester's feature film debut, and it's this kind of wacky, it's a supernatural horror that becomes a creature feature, and it just... <laughs> It's just so 2006. The music, the <laughs> the language the teens are using, like bad pickup lines, jocks versus goths. You know, it's like uh, yeah. 2006 in a microchasm. And it was one of those things where part of me thought it was like a fever dream. Like I <laughs> I could remember this kind of vague plot. And, and finally, it like thunderstruck and it came to me. And, um, and you know, I, I knew it was right up the certified forgotten team's alley. And so they were gracious enough to to let me write about it so yeah you can find that over at certified forgotten's website they have you know that piece and really a lot of other phenomenal pieces of people digging into you know forgotten movies from that really that aughts time period so so cool yeah i see them posting quite a lot on twitter as well and they have a lot of great content so please be sure to check out certified forgotten and you said you wrote a piece on saint Maud as well yeah that is up at film cred that one it was one of those things where i saw um i watched the movie for the first time and immediately reached out to film cred and was like hey i don't know what i want to say yet but i know i have something to say about this movie <laughs> um and and that's uh, that's up at film cred as well um so you can check out there again film creds a phenomenal place that really does a great job yeah. of of letting less you know like myself you know i i don't have bylines really a lot of places i'm i'm still new to the writing game so they're an awesome place that really gives people an opportunity to to work with an editor and go through the pitch process and and really learn about you know writing and refining your pieces so definitely check their stuff out and if you're in the same boat you know thinking that you might want to write and explore that uh, definitely reach out to them because they're a phenomenal place to, to really help you get off the ground. And, and honestly, so is certified forgotten, you know, the team over there has kind of that same goal where they're really wanting to give space to people, you know, that, that don't constantly get published and, and help them in the process and help them become better writers. Uh, yeah, I have to second that too. I haven't worked with certified forgotten yet, but I've definitely uh, had at least, well, I've had one piece with uh, film cred and I have to say, it was one of the best processes I've ever had of writing a piece because they're so hands-on, but they're not micromanaging. They're just really clear about what language could have been a bit clearer here and there, how to format it. And if you have questions, they're willing to answer. Uh, it's one of the few places so far that I've reached out to that I've written for, for my own website. I asked, like, can I link this to your website? So I, at least I have some content on my own website. And they're like, as far as I can, I'm concerned, you own the rights to your own yeah. piece we, we, we facilitate but that's about as far as they go like they pay yeah. you for it but they don't own the property through it and i think that is such a healthy way to view that since you're the one who puts the work out there so uh, film cred show them your support we're going to put both of those articles a link to those in the show notes so that everybody can check that out so thank you again jd and thank you dear listener for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horse goodbye Squad.